Hello and welcome to Trip Toes, the story of an accidental masterpiece. My name is Nate, and today I'm joined by Lex. Hey, everybody. And uh, we are continuing our discussion of the 2003 film Tiptoes and our deep appreciation of a film that may not deserve it. Uh, to summarize what we've gone through so far, for those that are new and so for those who've forgotten, I have uh, forcefully dragged Lex into uh, <laughs> a, a podcasting engagement where he has to talk about a movie that he showed me 11 years ago and that he uh, came to discover that I take too seriously, that I've researched a lot and that I have like a small obsession with. So um, the uh, so far we've talked a bit about how the movie is just so bizarre because it feels like several genres um, blended together, uh, that it doesn't have direction. And we've hypothesized a little bit about why that could be it seemed based on what we know of how the movie was made it seems like people were different people in the production crews were at loggerheads and had different hopes and aspirations for the film i we can hazard to say that people who are acting in the film even may have had different expectations for what the film was going to be we've uh we've watched a series of films uh, that I think illuminate theory that <laughs> there might be reasons that are interesting why Tiptoes didn't turn out as well as it would it should have. But most of them have to do with the director, Matthew Bright, uh, and and his background making exploitation films and other types of bizarre movies. And the bomb that was dropped in the last episode is that Matthew Bright had been roommates with the... Uh, with the actor Hervé Villachez, um, who is one of the more famous uh, little people in Hollywood. Yeah, that that moment when when you told me that, because I I you know I outside of this podcast, I've like done some my own kind of like re like very limited research about things, and like I never found the connection between Matthew Bright or Tiptoes in general with. Irve or little people or like why Matthew Bright cared about little people at all. And when you told me that, like my mind just exploded, like everything kind of like fell into place on like why he would, why he would make that movie. Cause a lot of times you watch like really bad movies and you're just like, why did this get made? Like, why did people want to put effort into this? You know? Um, and I think that like to find something that nobody else has talked about or reported on or, you know, have even mentioned on like, there's been other podcasts about this movie or like at least, you know, at least dedicated an episode to this movie. Like people have been talking about this movie on the internet and I've never once seen anyone make the connection between Matthew Bright and Irve and like such an iconic, uh, actor as Irve Velichez. Um, and so like the fact that like that, you know, we're kind of our, our theory, which I think makes a lot of sense. I, I, I couldn't see any other way, you know, Matthew Bright hasn't confirmed this for us yet, but like, it just doesn't seem like it's a coincidence. It can't be a coincidence that like he was roommates with Irve and then after Irve's death wanted to make a movie about little people, you know, <laughs> like there's like that. Yeah. And there's an explicitly French character yes. that bears a lot of similarity, a French character in tiptoes, I should say yeah. that bears a lot of similarities to Hervé or what we right. know of Hervé. Right. And the last episode um, we talked about, like, uh, um, we talked about Peter Dinklage's like history, like, like basically portraying Hervé. Like he's basically like, you could argue he's done it twice now. Once, not in name and then the most recently 100% as Irve, you know, with like the fake teeth and the accent and everything, like really trying to, um, I think in a very respectful way, um, paying tribute to this, this, you know, pioneer, this blazing pioneer who kind of paved the way for him. You know, I don't think, I think that he would be the first person to say something that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Like, sure, there have been yeah. other little people actors before, but I don't think that uh, I, I think Peter Dinklage himself is kind of a tra trailblazer as well. Uh, I don't think that, like, 
a whole lot of them were taken as like the movie that we're going to talk about today talks a lot about like Irve's struggle with not being taken seriously. Right. Um, and I think that like, you know, before, uh, Oh, the other movie that we talked about, um, which is remind me the name with, uh, um, in our second episode, what was that movie called? Again? Oh, living in oblivion. Yes. Living in oblivion. Uh, you know, Peter, Inkl- Peter Dinklage is in that movie as well. And he kind of confronts Steve Buscemi's character about like, Oh, you are, you just have a, a dwarf in this scene so that people think it's weird and, a, and you know, so that people know that it's a dream sequence. Right. Uh, you know, and he storms off the set and like, I think that like, um, you know, both, or like Irve really kind of struggled with that. And because of him, like trying to fight against those roles and like, uh, fight against that idea. Um, he kind of paved the way for Peter Dinklage to like do what he's been doing. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and something we didn't even mention there, there's like another parallel that I forgot to address, but have you seen, um, uh, Twin Peaks? Uh, I've, I've watched a little bit of it. Not a whole lot. Have you gotten to like the dream sequence in Twin Peaks? Uh, uh, yes, it is. I, it's been a while since I've seen it, but yeah. So there's a dream sequence in the original series, Twin Peaks, Mm -hmm. where, uh, the main detective character, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he encounters, um, a little person in this sort of bizarre parlor room. Yeah. And he's talking very strangely because they were actually recording him talking backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, it's like a very kind of a uncanny scene that that little person is in tiptoes. Oh, really? Yeah. He plays, um, I believe he plays. Oh, he plays uh, McConaughey's dad. His father. Yes. I recognize yeah. him now. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's like, a, it's like even, and that's a David Lynch, you know, that's a pretty high, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> depending on how you talk about David Lynch, but like he, that's kind of like a high, high art benchmark a little bit is Twin Peaks. And even that has a, twi- a dream sequence that depends on having a little person in it yeah. to add to its like strangeness. Yeah. Mike, you know? Michael um, J. Anderson is the actor's name who is in Twin Peaks and in and Tiptoes. He's I feel like I've seen him in other things, too. Um, his face looks very familiar, but I'm looking at his uh, IMDb page and I'm not. I'm not saying what I would have, what would uh, peop, other people recognize him in. But yeah, Twin Peaks is probably the big one. If you've seen Twin Peaks, you definitely have uh, seen this actor. So, But it, it's like that scene in Living in Oblivion is almost like a, a mirror image of that Twin Peaks scene. Yeah. You know, it's sure. like it's almost making fun of it or, or like trying to draw attention to it, you know. Yeah. So there's like this this funny tradition of little not funny, but just like call it you could call it unfortunate um lazy basically tradition of using little people as more or less um you could say like furniture in scenes that are supposed to feel surreal right um so anyways and we've gotten commonality i think we you Mm -hmm. know thanks to people like peter dinklage and you know even before that you know Irve and and all the different uh uh actors of different abilities you know like We've kind of, I think, gotten past that, hopefully, as a, as a society. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't see it as much anymore, and uh, hopefully it's it's dead and gone. <laughs> hopefully that, that So kind of, we'll actually have yeah. to talk about that a little bit more at the end yeah. of this episode and definitely next episode because Peter Peter Dinklage has had some recent things to say about that. Sure. Um, so um, I'm really excited. So we haven't even mentioned the movie that we're discussing today. So, so last week we watched the we watched a movie called Forbidden Zone Ugh. that had both the director of Tiptoes, Matthew Bright, and uh, the actor, Hervé Villachez, in it. Um, and I think that that movie actually illuminated a lot of the connection between the two of them. It also gave a flavor for the kind of taste that Matthew Bright has, you know, yeah. the sort of things that he likes to be a part of and make, because he also wrote or co-wrote Forbidden Zone. Yeah. And this week I asked Lex to watch a movie called... Uh, My Dinner with Hervé, which I believe came out in 2018, and it's streaming now and I think exclusively on HBO Max. But it's a uh, biopic of Hervé Villachez, which I think, uh, I hope, will even give us a little bit more um, more reason to 
substantiate this connection, or it'll substantiate this connection even more. So, Lex, if you don't mind, in typical Triptos ta- fashion, can you, I'm going to put you on the spot to uh, to summarize the film a little bit for our viewers. Can you give a little? Yeah, pitch? sure. Um, so it is a um, it's a fictional story, but it's kind of based off of reality. the uh, The director of the movie um, was a reporter, uh, and he he kind of put himself as the um, main character of this movie and basically this main character uh is a like i said a journalist who um is a recovering alcoholic he gets assigned uh he comes back from a, a period of uh, uh basically a time off from work and he comes back and he gets assigned a interview so he has to fly to la to interview gore vidal and then as he's like talking about this assignment with his boss, his boss also says, you know, oh, I want you to also do a quick interview with uh, Ir- uh, Irve Valchez. Um, um, and, uh, you know, it's the 20th anniversary of the Bond movie that this actor was in. We want to do like a short little 500 word piece about his memories of working with, you know, um, on the James Bond set on Fantasy Island, all that stuff. So the guy flies to L.A. He has his interview with Irve first, and um, after a very brief interview, he kind of ends it and says, "Hey, I have to be on my way. I have to go to another interview." This really upsets Irve. <laughs> um, he is uh, not pleased to kind of be playing second fiddle or whatever. He kind of uh, he thought that this was going to be kind of a bigger deal. Um, he kind of hints that this is going to be his final interview. And it sounds kind of om- ominous, but um, a little bit of uh, of uh, foreshadowing there. But so um, this this interview causes the journalist to be late to his interview with Gore Vidal, and if uh, uh, and it, you know apparently Gore Vidal had a, uh, um, a a pension for being kind of a stickler <laughs> for people being on time. I don't know how much of this movie you know is based off a of fact or whatever, but uh, I think this stuff It's was sort of precise fish. to name him and to have him look so bad. So I have yeah. to feel like I <laughs> believe it's kind of true. It must have been, yeah, know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so anyway, he shows up. Gore, Gore Vidal's really upset. He says, I'm not doing the interview. Good, I said, good day, sir. And basically storms out. Um, and so the journalist is really distraught. He goes back to his hotel room. And then in the middle of the night, he gets a call from Hervé basically um, asking if he wants to finish the interview. So then uh, the journalist agrees. He goes outside. Uh, Hervé has a, uh, a limo driver who's driving him around in a limo everywhere. Um, and they go, they drive around L.A. and Hervé uh, talks about his life, you know, what it was like growing up. Um he you know i don't want to get too deep in the i feel like i've already have kind of gotten too deep in the 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 thick of it of like what this movie is um i didn't want mean to do like a scene by scene recap but basically (laughs) it's okay um i think it is kind of important to hit the the main points uh especially the ending i am going to kind of definitely spoil it here uh for anybody who doesn't know the story of um you know Irve valches very tragically um he committed suicide uh, shortly in real life, he committed shortly uh, c- committed suicide shortly after this interview. Um, the movie made it seem like it was the next day or the next morning, but in reality, it was a couple of days afterwards. But yeah, I mean, I think that um, this this really was kind of Irve kind of saw this as almost his his last hurrah, his kind of suicide note uh, was this this interview. Um, and they get into a lot of different things about Irve's life that we'll talk about and, um, what it means to be successful, what it means to be famous, um, a lot of, a lot of different stuff. But, uh, yeah, is there anything else, anything I missed, Nathan, anything else you want to talk about? No, I think it's really great. I mean, the, the one thing I would say is that the movie kind of toggles back between, um, the interview in real time and Hervé's life yeah. or what he's describing. So it does like, there's a lot of like reenactment of things from Hervé's life. Um, 
probably around the the time and before that Tiptoes was made. Right. And I and I think they, you know, there's this um there's this temptation in a lot of like fictionalized, you know, biography movies to like really um, you know, dramaticize like make things more dramatic um but from what i've read about Hervé Valdez like they really i think did a good job of kind of portraying um who he was as a person you know like his kind of his charm but also his wild side and you know he was a you know a womanizer even though he didn't like being called a womanizer he kind of was um and he just had like this taste for life that uh you know hollywood <laughs> kind of uh can lead to you know um but his, the, the, this wild side that you wouldn't expect he he lived big for such a little person is, is what i would say about him um it's really true yeah it's yeah. a very dramatic life yeah um so if you don't mind once again to put you on the spot uh do you i mean i don't think that there's any like grand reveal here but do you think that this uh how do you think this fits in with our broader discussion of Tiptoes, this movie specifically? That's a good question. Um, obviously, you know, we talked about the Matthew, Matthew Bright connection. Um, and, and we've already talked about how, you know, Irve was such a big inspiration on the Peter Dinklage character in uh, Tiptoes. Uh, I, I can't really, you know, I can't really see any other, like, major connections but if you have any i'd love to i'd love to have you drop them on me for sure the this movie i think dramatizes the difficulty that little people have being taken seriously Mm -hmm. or being treated as um well in in a variety of ways as competent actors as normal people with normal lives or even as interesting people, but not in a kind of sideshow interesting way. Like, so like people with interior lives um, that aren't entirely revolving around their condition. Right. Um, I think one of and, the the scenes that really struck me was, it was towards the beginning of the, the second half of the interview or whatever. And um, it's after, it's after um, Hervé's talking about how he had to basically flee France uh, because he kept getting like beat up on the side of the road. And I, I looked this up. This is true. This, this is why he came to America was because in France, he, he um, faced actual physical harm from, you know, from people who just didn't like the fact that he was becoming a successful artist. Uh, that's what he did first in France uh, as, you know, in his teen years, he, he painted and um, apparently had a lot of, uh, success as a painter and uh, it kind of put a target on his back from just the people I guess I don't know what kind of monsters back then would just want to beat up a, a little person but he what struck me is what he, you know after he after the flashback where it showed him you know uh, being treated this way you know it cuts back to the limo and he says you know why do you think it is that when people see us as any more anything more than freaks uh they fear us right like as soon as they start seeing us as real people they get scared he's like who would be afraid of someone like me you know and it's just it's it's very it's hard to understand that you know it's like and the reporter is lost for words he does he he can't answer that he says he's like i don't know and i don't know either you know it's like I don't understand, um, you know, it's, it's very, it was a, a hard moment to watch and a hard moment to like, think about like why people would react that way to someone different than them. Right. No, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. It's, um, it's, a. I think part of it, you know, I don't know, I couldn't offer a, a very cogent or insightful, um, answer uh, to that question either and i think part of it really just has to do with how fresh of a perspective it is mm-hmm. you know when when you hear it from someone like Hervé, um you realize that you've never even really considered that perspective right before. exactly it's, it's you like, can't it's like true you can't empathize it, with it if you don't know that it's occurring right and like 
And this is the first time you've been able to actually empathize with it because it's being made known to you exactly. in an interesting way. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I, I really love the way you're describing this movie. And it sounds like you had a that you enjoyed it. What was your impression of the movie? What did you yeah, what stood out to you? I think how I think it was. I so I knew going it like, obviously, I kind of we had been talking about Irve. So I like read up about his life and like then I found out that like this movie existed and Peter Dinklage was in it and it got me really excited. And then, so I kind of knew um, going in to be, you know, that, you know, that it was a sad ending basically to not kind of expect a, a you know, a really joyous, you know, <laughs> upbeat film. You know, you kind of have to go into this film knowing that like, it's not going to have a happy ending. Um, but I think it's still a, a really important film. Um, I think it's criminally underrated. I can't believe I hadn't heard of it. Like, I feel like if as well produced and well made as it is, it feels like an indie film because it came out to little to no fanfare. You know, like I, I, I don't remember seeing any kind of marketing for this movie. Um, you can watch it on HBO max, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't remember seeing much about it, but I think that I think everybody should watch it. I think that more people should know, this story um and get like you said that that perspective that you never would have had without it right um i think that uh i don't know i don't know if you have read this article yet nathan or if you wanted to talk about it but the um i can't remember the exact position but it's like the president of the um there's some foundation or, or organization that's like the uh yeah so the little people of america um wrote an article for i'm sorry the president of the um little people of america wrote an article for vanity um for their online i don't know if this was printed but at least you could read it online and it's called uh why my date why my dinner with Irve is an important step for representation. Um, and I don't, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but he basically gave this movie like his blessing. And he, um, you know, I, I, I think this first paragraph is, I'll just read this real quick. If you don't mind, um, please, please. He says award season is upon us once again. And as has appropriately been the case for the past few years, it will be dominated by talk of diversity. We've made great strides in this arena, and yet I feel one group seems to have been conspicuously left behind, the disability community. Although 20% of our population identifies as disabled with over a billion dollars in spending power, we are noticeably underrepresented on screen. Perhaps this invisibility is why a film like My Dinner with Hervé has resonated so deeply within my community. Uh, since the film's release as president of little people of America, the largest support organization for people with dwarfism in the world, I've been overwhelmed by the positive reactions to the film. It has been satisfying to hear from so many that one of our stories is finally being told with a real voice. And I think that's the important thing is that like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even like, he talked about award seasons. I wouldn't consider this movie Oscar bait. Like at all, I think. That, no, no, um, it never even could have come, risen to that level of attention. Right. Yeah. I think that uh, this movie was made obviously with a lot of respect and love and earnestness um, th- that really wanted to portray Irve as like a real human being um, who was flawed. Right. And who had so many issues um but was also was also a person, you know, like had redeeming qualities as well. Um, and you really like you really I feel like by the end of the film, you kind of understood a, at least a, a, had a glimpse of kind of um, the ups and downs of his life. Right. Like um, you kind of really felt like you knew him a lot better, obviously, than than at the start of it. I think that that's something that is that's kind of the goal of a of a you know movie that's going to be a biography is that like it's supposed to kind of um inform you not just of like what somebody did but like how they felt while they were doing it right and what the repercussions of their life was and i think that this movie does a really incredible job of that um oh man i'm so glad to hear you say that i i really think it's a 
a, a really great movie in its own way. Like, um, and it is, I think it's great in a way that's not typical of a lot of movies. Like, it's not a very arty movie. Yeah. I wouldn't say. Like, it doesn't even feel like it was made, you know, it's not avant-garde or something. Right. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like it's, it's very much a conventional story yeah. told in conventional ways. I watched it with, uh, my wife Hannah and she, like, could predict everything that was going to happen. Yeah. But that didn't, like, the predictability of the narrative and the simplicity of the way it was told, um, actually kind of made the movies poignant in a way that's i think unique in that it's a it's an old story told an old way about a new kind of person yeah 100 um, I, I i want to read one more paragraph from this article please uh we'll we'll throw it in the show notes too so people can read this on their own there, i think this article is really well written and um talks a lot about like what i loved about this movie but i thought this one was especially uh <laughs> um you know relevant to our conversation uh, it says countless talented actors have portrayed people with dwarfism uh, jose ferrer john leguizamo gary oldman ian mcshane etc with cgi magic or by absurdly acting on their knees none of them can hold a candle to what peter dinklage does peter dinklage does in my dinner with Irve. besides being one of the great actors of his generation he absorbs the struggle of this character with a depth of truth that can only come from someone who lives with this condition every day this is one of our own telling his story as well as Irve's. um yeah i think that like that's really powerful yeah wow that kind of gets into what we talked about like what the biggest blunder with tiptoes was in my opinion besides all of the you know plot stuff like i think one of the biggest blunders that was directly you know from that was kind of doomed from the start was the fact that they got gary oldman to play play a little person like it's it's hard to take a movie seriously that does something like that whereas this one you know peter apparently peter dinklage wanted this movie made for years and he worked with um i can't remember the director. sasha yeah. gervaisi thank you yeah sasha who mm-hmm. who is supposed to be the protagonist of this film. Um, they they wanted to make this movie for a long, long time, and they spent a lot of time writing it and kind of perfecting it. Um, and it, you can tell, you can definitely tell the the end result is is really powerful. But. Yeah. So just like to the there are a couple details about the movie that are kind of worth knowing. So um, it you know it's a fictionalized version of a true story. Yeah. Um, you know so like there's uh i think the biggest thing is like the foreshortening of time really right it's just that like everything acts like it happened on one night um sort of like that movie that came out recently like one night in miami i think Mm. um that kind of like condenses these interactions between a lot of uh civil rights leaders into one night um yeah this this movie definitely certainly does that and it like you said it, it brings the the death of Hervé much closer to the interview date but in general it's based about Sasha Gervaisi when he was an interview in a reporter interviewing um Hervé um at a particularly rough point in his career and a rough point in his life yeah and yeah you can being, if you if you google the director's name the first pictures you're gonna see is him with Hervé like on that night um it's really really interesting (laughs) like to have first seen the film and then seeing like the real people behind it is um and like how many pictures they took from that crazy night uh and then the director also did an article um that's kind of like his end um what he ended up writing at the end of the film right like his actual article uh, about Irve, kind of his. Uh, this is after he found out that Irve had committed suicide. He kind of writes a full-length article about you know his life and what that what their interaction meant to him. Um, and you can actually read some of that. I think it was written as like a promotion for the movie, which is kind of awkward. Um, mm-hmm. But he he basically said like, "This is how it really happened. This is how it really went down." Uh, and it was almost scene for scene what happened in the movie. So uh, I think a lot of it was pulled straight from the experience of the of the director. And I think he did a, a they did a really good job of like 
bringing to life this person, even if it's not 100% accurate on everything. Um, I think almost it was more, it's almost more important for them to have um, kind of portray, like give you the sense for how this person was than to actually um, be factually correct. Right. Like, Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like what they, what like um, actors and comedians will tell you about doing a, a, a impersonation of someone. It's not about sounding exla- exactly like that person. It's about finding a voice that makes people think of that person, right? Uh, and like yeah, ex- yeah. almost exaggerating it, right? Like, um, so yeah, it's it's uh it's I, I I think it's a great movie. I think that everybody should watch it. It's on HBO Max. Most people have that nowadays, um, and I think that it's it's accessible. It's more accessible than some of the other movies we've talked about on here. It's the best one you've made me watch yet, for by by a long shot. Uh, if anybody, <laughs> hey, I like it. Living in Oblivion. Oh yeah, too. Living in Oblivion was very good in in its own yeah. way. But this is uh, like Andre said. Like if you're if you like or are in film then you'll really like that movie. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, you might not enjoy it so much. Whereas this movie, I think everybody should watch it. And, and if you don't like it, you're a monster. But <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, that's a, there, there's your pressure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you must like this uh, film or you're not a good person. I'm just, I'm just, I would just be surprised if people didn't. Like, yeah. It's like, it's, you know, there are, it's there like are not some... liking Schindler's list, right? It's like, that's, <laughs> that's an extreme. It's not like that at all, but it's just like, uh, you know, you're just kind of a bad person if you don't find this moving, you know, like, well, that's true. But I mean, even just in terms of like, there's certainly the moral elements, but I mean, it's more like not liking the Lion King, in my opinion. Yeah, sure. like, it's just like, it's just like, a, a, there's not bad things in the movie, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, it's, it's, just it's like, a good film on its own. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's the... The Hervé-Peter Dinklage dynamic is fascinating to me, like I said in the last episode. I think it is kind of a cool uh, full-circle dynamic Mm -hmm. that Peter Dinklage's career has sort of... uh, uh, How do I put it? Uh, His star has essentially risen to the point that he can be the focal point of a movie. And I think it's really uh, kind of touching in a way that he gets to be the focal point of a movie that is about another uh little person in hollywood whom dinklage had already portrayed right you know, so and who speak. never really got there like i think that if everybody could see peter dinklage now he'd be uh in shock and awe you know like he would be proud i think that someone that w- was able to risen to that level um maybe jealous <laughs> I, you know, I can't uh speak for this person but i it's uh i don't think there's anybody better suited to to kind of uh, take on the task of playing someone like Irvay than than Peter Tinklage. Dinklage's accent is like an order of magnitude better in this movie than it was in Tiptoe. Yeah, you, know, you could tell he has spent a lot of time kind of perfecting <laughs> that for sure. He sounded like not just French, but like you know, uh, uh, you know, it's interesting that Peter Dinklage doesn't have this, but a lot of, uh, at least from what I've seen, uh, you know, l- little people have kind of higher pitched voices, um, and maybe it, it comes with a specific uh you know um form of dwarfism that that's why that happens and that and peter Dinklage just might must not have that and that's why he sounds kind of more his voice is is deeper um but uh yeah i think that um he does a phenomenal job kind of like if you were to play herve's voice and with my eyes closed and then play peter Dinklage's voice playing as him I don't know if I would be able to tell the difference. He does. He does a really good job. It's so good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there are just like some interesting dynamics here that I want to highlight about the movie before we move on to, or more, actually more highlight about Hervé that the movie does an interesting job of portraying. Yeah. But um, like you mentioned, he was a he was a fairly successful painter in France, which is where he was born and raised. Mm-hmm. Um, he attended the prestigious Ecole de Beaux-Arts, um, or Ecole de Beaux-Arts, um, in Paris when he was only 16. Yeah. Um, and the movie kind of shows how, you know, because of 
certain acts of violence and done uh done to him also because of a sort of cravings for certain kinds of recognition mm -hmm. he decided to go become an actor in hollywood where he had a lot of difficulty sort of breaking into the scene until he got a sort of fortuitous call to be knickknack mm -hmm. on uh a J in a james bond film the man with the golden gun which is actually a pretty critical point of the plot too um of the of the movie my dinner yeah. with Hervé. uh and then he has a dry spell and that dry spell in the he where he doesn't do anything for several years i believe is when he was part of uh forbidden zone although it might have been just after he started uh when he was cast in fantasy island hmm. which was the huge lucrative role for him um and what really made him famous and recognizable and rich um and shortly um after he he achieved fame and fortune um I don't want to ruin exactly what happens, but there there are reasons that he kind of falls out of grace and both in Hollywood and in the public eye and in his relationships that are very interesting and worth seeing in a um uh worth seeing in the movie, but he ends up uh having to act in different sort of things when he's older. The Dunkin' Donuts commercials and things like that. Something I don't love in the movie is the way that they portray Hervé making art, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that feels essentially like very hammy and corny to me. Yeah. Um, because I think that he was actually a, a sort of respected artist, you know, but mm -hmm. they make him seem like a kind of glorified finger painter. It makes him look a little <laughs> bit um, silly. Um, but and anyways, let's uh, let's not beat around the bush um, a little bit or much more with this. I think. Uh, like you, you said, movies worth watching. I, I think anyone would watch it and enjoy it. Um, it's interesting that this story was basically this movie and the interview that Sasha Gervaisi achieved with Hervé is the ex largely the extent of the biographical information we have about Hervé. Mm -hmm. um, the aside from the script and things Sasha has written about the his experiences. Um Hervé was kind of a character actor that really never received any sort of biographical attention. Mm -hmm. Like people didn't care a whole lot where he came from or what he was about. Um so I think it's really interesting that this movie was a way of um was one of the only ways that we were ever going to really learn who he was. Um and that thankfully Sasha had this kind of encounter with him. It's interesting because uh, Peter Dinklage has gotten into some hot water recently um, with the dwarf community, with the uh, dwarf community, excuse me, um, because he's kind of spoken up on certain types of representational issues. Hmm. Um, and I don't I don't really um, how do I put it? I, I don't really know what the moral high ground in the situation is um, or what should be the proper stance. But it's really it's fascinating to me because he Dinklage has essentially taken a non-vocal position um, throughout his career, which I think is totally his right. And there's nothing essentially wrong with that, but um, people always look to him for like a hot take or um, a particular sort of social justice position Um I think both on the media side and on the, like the the side of little people who are who want him to represent them in various ways, hmm. um, and it's only recently that he started speaking up. And um, it's the sort of bizarre Twilight Zone thing that to me was that it there are elements of his recent um, headlines that really rhyme with things that were happening with Hervé, where people were essentially holding him up to standards like you represent us the stakes are higher mm -hmm. you know so um you need to say the right things you need to have the right positions and it really just made me so conscious of how there's no winning you know that yeah. there's like a basically um that he um 
basically the dance that these these actors have to do in terms of both pursuing their own career right they're trying to get more roles they're trying to get better roles they're trying to get more recognition mm. so that that snowball continues right um and there are a lot of good reasons that actors become famous or and there are a lot of bad reasons too but the interesting thing is like kind of as your star grows bigger you are held to different standards and you yeah. become a spokesperson in various ways whether you want and to or not yeah whether you want to or not whether you just wanted to be an actor and you wanted the opportunity to act or whatever right um but like the decisions for what movie kinds of movies you're in mm -hmm. then become a decision more than just like a job right. you know what i mean right. you're not just like a contractor i'm gonna come fix your toilet yeah. you know what i mean like there's yeah. The difference between being in one kind of movie and another kind of movie actually kind of feels vaguely moral, you know, like, right. so like the decision of, say, bringing it back to the topic of this podcast, like choosing to be in a movie like Tiptoes, you could do that for, you know, paycheck reasons. You could do that for representational or moral reasons. You mm -hmm. could do it for both or none. You know what I mean? Like there, there's lots of various reasons, but right. Um, at the end of the day, we don't know, yeah. right. Unless the actor comes out and says why, you know, why they decided to like, I think that, I don't know if you knew this, Nathan, but I, I had heard this a long time ago was that he was actually very, very hesitant to agree to be on game of Thrones because up until that point, he refused to play like dwarves or elves in a fantasy context because he just found them, um, you know, found that to just not be, I don't know for, like you said, for moral reasons or just like respectability, like he didn't want to be typecasted, you know, or like maybe he was mm -hmm. making kind of a political statement, but, um, uh, you know, I have his Wikipedia page up here cause I wanted to make sure I got my facts straight on this, but yeah. he's, it says unfamiliar with the source material. Dinklage was cautious in his first meeting with the producers as a dwarf. He wouldn't play elves or leprechauns and was choosy about genre roles. Um, but they were kind of, you know, they told him that this character is a different for anybody who hasn't seen Game of Thrones. Uh, the the character that Peter Dinklage plays is it's a lot more serious. It's a it's a um, it says here like a different kind of fantasy little person. There's no beard, no pointy shoes, a romantic real human being. Right. And that's kind of what got Dinklage to agree to be on it. Um, was that he just, I think at the end of the day, he, you know, people just want respect and they want to be taken seriously. And I think that, um, you know, just to push back a little bit on what you're talking about, how he, uh, you know, at least back then he was very, he was a lot more, um, you know, choosy of his roles. Uh, he was a lot more, you know, no. So it's actually yeah. very much on brand. So, yeah. I mean, I don't mind, I, I can get right into it. Like, I'm not, I don't, like I said, I'm not criticizing him at all. It just yeah. shows, speaks to the complexity of the problem, really. Right. What he spoke up about recently is a remake of Se Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Right. Um, where, um, if I remember correctly, he was speaking out against the, the representation of dwarves at all. Yes. So not just not just the CGI like rendering of uh, normally sized people right. into smaller stature or the casting of little people a la Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the way he, he kind of has a critique of fantasy genre yes. races as a whole. Right. And that's what he got like. So the, the people were kind of reacting against him because they're like sometimes I mean, when you're trying to get into acting, you have to take what you can get. Right. You know what I mean? So especially if you're a little person, you're, it feels like your options are already limited. You know, do you bite the bullet and accept typecasting and hoping that opens doors to where you get respectability down the road? Or do you hold your firm moral stance and risk never getting cast ever? Sure. Yeah. Because you have no, you have no real, you know what I mean? You have nothing that people can look back on and say you were in this and you did well. Um, so that's the only, I mean, that this really is the issue I'm thinking about. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I like, uh, I think, and I think, you know, I, I don't, like I said, I don't really have an opinion on the, the fantasy issue of things. I think it's really interesting that he does. And yeah, I, like you, you know. said, that kind of fits like the more I think about it, that kind of fits in, like he doesn't necessarily, or like he does have a problem with like the fact that historically 
dwarves portrayed in fairy tales and like all these things are just it, they're hurtful stereotypes, right? They they don't mm-hmm. they don't further the representation of uh, of little people in media in any meaningful way that something like my dinner with Irve does, right? As like yeah. as real people, not just fan, you know, things to be kind of you know to go back to the dream thing like that's oh you can tell you're watching a dream sequence because there's a you know a weird little person in it you know or like you can tell this is a fantasy because there's dwarves in it you know like i also love uh i don't know (laughs) i'm sure you're aware but i love how they made his character giant in uh, avengers he plays he plays a dwarf in in the avengers movies I don't know if you've seen them, but I should, I guess I, I have. I don't it. remember that really at he, all. So actually, I have to plays, go back and see that. He yeah. plays like the famous dwarf that forged Thor's hammer. That's right. Oh my god! And gosh, he's yeah, like giant. Right. Yeah, like the, I think the only way yeah. they got him to agree to do that is by making him a giant dwarf. It's it's awesome. Uh, it's yeah, so which weird. is like I think what a lot of people who like uh, have taken umbrage with uh, Dinklage's position are like think yeah. about think fantasy has rules of its own you yeah. know what i mean like dwarf doesn't mean little person you know right. so like but but whatever um i think he pretty much is the authority on the matter <laughs> like so it's like yeah. you know d- trust yeah. his opinion but that's a that's a really good example like i bet i bet i wonder if that was by invitation that they told him that's the kind of role it was going to be or right. if that was his own negotiation that made that happen yeah if it was his negotiation you really can think of it as kind of a a huge win for representation 100 uh, or um, you know maybe they just offered him a big fat check <laughs> you, you just can't you can't know right like right? You, i wouldn't blame him for doing that either i don't know like you said it's a very complex thing um yeah i i know a lot of actors that uh, not a lot um i've heard several actors talk about how the way that they approach uh being cast in movies if they have this kind of liberty is they'll alternate between a passion project and a money project mm, mm-hmm. so that like they'll they'll say yes to things that pay the bills so that they can say yes to the indie films or the art films or the movies that matter that they want to be a part of yeah but they they're having to negotiate that luxury by being in things that they aren't excited about right you know um yeah so i think it was like 2020 or maybe even 2021 uh bruce campbell or not bruce campbell bruce willis started doing like all of these like b-rated movies he did like just (laughs) a like a huge handful of like terrible movies um you could say arguably terrible movies and i i Mm -hmm. remember specifically cracked coming out with an article which you know does actually tie back to this because I'm still reading crack. But I remember <laughs> yeah. them coming out being like, "What's with Bruce Willis making all these terrible movies? Oh, how he has fallen or whatever." And then uh, recently, within the past six months or whatever, it came out that uh, Bruce had to retire from acting because he has like a, a serious uh, disease that's going to basically inevitably uh, take his life. You know, um, and so I I don't know. Have you heard about this? No, no, the, not at all. Yeah. Um, so, so what's his rationale for being in the movies? Well, he just I th- I think that he just wanted to make as much money as he possibly could or or maybe it's not even about the money because obviously he's, you know, he probably doesn't need it, but he just wanted to be in as many projects as he possibly could before he couldn't anymore, right? Um, yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, that like there are literally so many reasons you could choose to be in something. Yeah. And for whatever reason, audiences have these different expectations for why you should be in something. Yeah. The only thing I want, uh, so this this discussion is really uh, circling um, around the point that I'd hope we'd get to, which is just appreciating the diversity of reasons that people would have for being in Tiptoes. You know, like there's something about watching a movie like Tiptoes and wondering, like, how is this person in it? What did they think was what do they think they were doing? And, you know, you don't know who has a, you know, uh, medical bills to pay or a drug addiction or who really needs this like career jump, you know, and they need to be in this kind of movie. I mean, there's such a variety of reasons. And yet we hold actors to all these standards for why for, you know choosing what they're going to be in and why. Um, and that there's also, especially in the case of Tiptoes, there's this really interesting dynamic where 
I I really feel for the actors because I don't think I don't think they knew what they were going to be in. Like obviously they didn't know Tiptoes was going to be the way it is, but like there's just an element where when you think about how films are shot, you know everything's shot. You're given a script, right? Um, right. And you're said you're going to play this character in this in this script. Well, then they shoot things completely out of sequence based on location and people's schedules, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like they're shooting things in direct narrative order. And then other people are choosing the takes from the Mm -hmm. scenes that they want. They're also choosing the scenes that they want. And by the end, it might not look anything like you imagine that script is going to be, you know? And I really, really think that happened with Tiptoes. I mean, we have a lot of evidence to that case, but I want to show you something right now that I think confirms it even more. And it's also a bit of a a bizarre thing. Let me make sure I can pull it up for you. Wow. That's that's crazy. That's... uh, Yeah. I'm glad that uh, we saw this so we don't have to interview Matthew McConaughey anymore. I, this kind of confirmed my suspicion that Matthew McConaughey wouldn't have anything interesting to say about this film. <laughs> it's it's crazy. Yeah, like, he just comes across as like. Well, it's almost like Jeff Bridges like, knows yeah. more about the project than he does. <laughs> like, well, he does. He really wild. does. I mean, so in yeah. case I'm not able to include the script, yeah. uh, so in case I'm not able to include the clip from this video, um, it's a actor viewing a- interviewing actor clip hosted by variety magazine that's on youtube i can link to it in the show notes um jeff bridges and matthew mcconaughey are interviewing each other and jeff bridges brings up tiptoes asking matthew mcconaughey about tiptoes and jeff bridges reveals that he has been lifelong friends with matthew bright that he's his oldest friend and that he helped write the script so it's not just like he knows more about it. I mean, he literally does because oh, he was wild. because he was he helped make it and he was going to play Matthew McConaughey's role. So crazy. So crazy. Well, and they talked a lot and then the, he kind of confirmed our suspicions that suspicion that like Matthew Bright got kicked, like the movie got ripped away from him and they cut it up and they basically turned it into the abomination that it is. And that I really feel like if we could get our hands on the, the 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 way that this movie was meant to be viewed, I think that it would change a lot about it. You know, it would make it a little, I think, a little bit more cohesive. I would imagine. But is does it seem is it surprising to you at all that Jeff Bridges is so closely that's, associated? Oh, with that's it? Buck Wild. I <laughs> the fact that like Matthew Bright, like he must know the Elfmans pretty well then, because it sounded like certainly. Matthew yep. Bright was really good friends with Richard and Danny Elfman and Jeff Bridges must have been part of that crew. I can't imagine like being a fly on the wall of like them hanging out as kids or teens or whatever. Like it's very, very crazy. What a, what a wild world we live in. Jeff Bridges has, I believe like kind of a Hollywood pedigree. I think his parents sure. are both famous actors and actresses. So, but that means Matthew Bright was that much closer to like normal Hollywood. Yeah. And uh, that he was, and that they had worked on this for so long. Yeah. That's just so crazy to me. And I, I mean, the, when I saw that Jeff Bridges worked on this, it, it that was a really surreal moment for me because once again, nobody talks about this. You talk about tiptoes <laughs> to anybody, and like you watch all the inter- like the 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 stuff that you can find on tiptoes and podcasts and stuff, and nobody talks about how. And Jeff Bridges was worked on it. It could have been Matthew McConaughey's character. Like that's it's just wild. Yeah, I mean, what do you think? Like, so do you do you think that there's anything? I mean, I can comp- I wholeheartedly agree that Matthew McConaughey is an uninteresting interviewer and interviewee. <laughs> in this. But I think for our purposes, he just wouldn't. We he wouldn't have much to you know much to say about this yeah. film. I don't think. But but yeah. but I do want to get your pulse on. He keeps talking about the film being anarchy and Matthew Bright being an anarchist. Yeah. Do you think that's just metaphorical? No, I don't. It... <laughs> I, yeah. I think that like, if you watch forbidden zone, if you like, 
uh, just know anything about Matthew Bright. Like, it just, you can get that feeling. Yeah, there, so it seems like there's, like, some kind of, like, political conviction in the movie that attracted Matthew McConaughey, potentially. It certainly yeah. appealed to Jeff Bridges, like, this kind of style of thing. I don't, whatever it was, they had, they had imagined it to be. Um, yeah. So it's just, it's really interesting. I mean, and so... um I think I think we'll kind of wrap things up here, but yeah. um, all I'll say just to sum up is just that I think it's tiptoes comes uh, becomes even more clear what it could have been when we consider why actors are in it, who mm-hmm. and why they what they thought they were getting into versus what it actually turned out to be, and just like the process of movie making and shooting films that completely obscures to them what the final movie is going to look like yeah that other people are always going to decide which takes which scenes which characters are emphasized you know yeah. um so i mean well, <laughs> matthew bright or it was matthew mcconaughey doesn't really talk about it like he's ashamed of it at all yeah uh either which is interesting he kept but, using yeah. the word carny which felt a little Sandpaper, like ching- fingernails on a chalkboard to me. I don't know. I think he was just. Oh, it's horrible. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 he has, like, he doesn't have, like, a, a sensitive or diplomatic bone in his body because he keeps talking about people as being a shorty or a biggie. Yeah. Either, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. So you're like, man, you really, it doesn't even sound like you were in it for, like, the. Yeah. Like, moral, potentially right. moral. You can reasons. see why he agreed to be in this movie now. <laughs> yeah. Um, Even in its worst version, right? But I yeah. think, just to go, just real quickly before we wrap up, mm-hmm. um, to, to kind of see, like, where a. To kind of see the inverse of this, or to see, like, where a movie, where everything goes right, um, is I, I saw a movie over the weekend uh, called Everything Everywhere All at Once. And, um, it, it, it was not like, it was notable to me that it, if you're not familiar with the, the movie, if you haven't seen it yet, because I don't think it's been released on streaming platforms yet. I think you have to go to the theater, but, um, if it's an absurdist kind of comedy action film, uh, there's off obviously a lot of, um, uh, what, what am I trying to say? Sorry. There's a lot of, um, influence from like, uh, 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 Chinese action Kung Fu type movies. Um, but there's, it's also very much like, I, I think, uh, not so much like, um, it's like I said, absurdist. So you kind of get like the exploitation, like kind of vibe from it. It's also, it's also a movie, um, made by or produced by a 24, which we've talked about a little bit before with like when we were talking about Robert Eggers and, um, all of the movies that, um, that he's done. Um, and a 24 is really known for being like kind of the best place f- for indie movie makers to like distribute their films right like like they take it seems to me like they take a very hands-off approach with letting the directors have the final say right and i think like that's probably why a24 is my favorite like i'll go see almost any movie that they put out because even if it's not my taste you know that the people that made this movie uh you know had final say over what what went out um and so I, I I loved the movie. My wife loved it. It's funny and authentic and crazy. There's some I don't want to spoil anything for anyone. Um, yeah, don't but, spoil it. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. It's like top of my list. It's yeah, yeah. I recommend everybody stopping listening to this podcast to go watch it because uh, at, at first chance you get because it it's probably one of the best movies I've seen in, in quite some time. Uh, I don't really like absurdist films, especially like when they don't you can't really tell what they're trying to say with it but this one even though it's like crazy and wonky and uh trippy um it uh it's very it has no right being as cohesive as it is like it is it's you you understand from start to finish exactly what they're trying to say with their story and that's not what something you can say with at with tiptoes right like someone else came or, in or most movies honestly it yeah. always feels like <laughs> sure. there's like you know, the extra limb, you know, it doesn't yeah. like quite make sense. But I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I think we should let everyone else 
everyone else st- give them the opportunity to stop listening to go watch my dinner with Hervé. Yeah, um, that too. And to yeah. watch everything everywhere all at once. Uh, next week we're going to talk about um, representation, uh, kind of more of these issues of representation in movies in Hollywood. Yes, I'm very um, excited about both that. on yeah both like in a depiction sense and in more of like a labor sense what it means to work in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Lex, is there anything you want to plug before we go? Um, yeah, so I, uh, I, if you're not familiar, I, <laughs> I am, uh, I do another podcast called Virtually Analog, where it's a weekly podcast where we talk about board games and video games and the blurring line between. Um, and I, I stream video and board games on Twitch at twitch.tv slash virtually analog. I haven't really pitched my stuff on this show yet because it's, uh, you know, board games and video games aren't really kind of related. But if you like hearing my voice, you want to hear more of it, you can check those out. So it's really great. Yeah, I, lo- I love both the things. And it, you guys are very talented and yeah. have uh, have kept the, the flame alive for a while. Yeah. So, yeah, with that, well, with that, I think we'll sign off. Lex, it's nice talking with you. And uh, yeah, we'll see everyone next time. See you guys.